everyone, let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to Galatians chapter 3. We've had a few weeks away from Galatians. And uh, we return uh, at the start of really what's a new section. Many of you may know, some of you may not know, that Galatians is essentially split up into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2 are very much Paul's own testimony, a bit of a story about how he came to know the gospel and be a preacher of the gospel. And it's something of a defense of his role as a preacher of the gospel. And then chapters 3 and 4 really get stuck more and more into the theology. Uh, So the truth about what this gospel actually is and why Paul is defending it before moving on to the last section in chapters 5 and 6 on ethics. So telling us what difference does this gospel make in our life. So tonight we start Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1 in just a a second. Uh, But let's pray again and ask for God's help. Father, thank you for your glorious word. Thank you that uh, we have been born again by this living and abiding word. Pray that you would give new life uh, tonight to those who do not know you. And pray that for those who do know you, who, have, who by faith have laid hold of your promises, that we would uh, be refreshed uh, and renew our hope in the gospel. Uh, tonight we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians chapter 3, reading from verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to abraham might come to the gentiles through christ jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the spirit amen This is God's word. 
Imagine for a second a scenario where someone is stuck in a building that is on fire. It's a daily reality across our nation. Fire brigade come and help. Imagine the fire brigade plucking someone from safety from that burning building that was about to collapse, bringing them down the ladders, using my imagination, standing on that front lawn, looking up at that building, the firemen thinking, great, we got them out. Can you imagine for a second what that fireman might do if the person that they had just rescued from that burning building all of a sudden just threw off their blanket and tried to ascend those ladders again, trying to get back into the burning building. What do you think you would say to such a person? Do you think you would politely and calmly say, why? What are you doing? Or would you be like, what are you doing? Getting back into the building you've you've just been rescued from this what on earth are you doing we would speak with some level of concern i expect some volume as well why on earth would you be wanting to put yourself back in danger again you've just been rescued from that why try and get back into it i think in some sense it's an illustration for us of what is happening actually to the galatians to the believers in the churches in this province called Galatia. They have been rescued from the sure judgment of God for their sin by believing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ that Paul had preached to them. But the thing that's happened is these false teachers that we heard about in chapters 1 and 2 have come along and they have discredited Paul as an apostle, as a teacher. And they have distorted his message of the gospel, saying, oh, you know, Paul, Paul's gospel isn't the true gospel. He's missing out some key elements related to these various works of the law, like circumcision and dietary laws, all these kind of things. And anyway, he's not really been trained in the, by the proper apostles down in Jerusalem, so we're discrediting his apostleship. It's faith in Jesus plus works of the law that makes us right with God. Let's pop that on screen. If, I'm no mathematician, but if I was to put this in some kind of uh, equation, the false teachers are essentially saying in some sense, Jesus plus the works of the law, observing the law like dietary laws, circumcision, things like that. This is what's going to get you right with God, justified. Counted righteous, pardoned from your sin. But sadly, the Galatians are persuaded by these arguments of the false teachers. And I think to Paul, that would be just like putting yourself back into the burning building. It's a crazy thing to do. It's not a wise thing to do. Indeed, it's a foolish thing to do, which is what he says in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, that is so unwise. That, that effort to believe these false teachers, to to add to the gospel that I have already laid before you and on which you have taken your stand is so foolish. It must be that someone has cast a spell on you. There's no other reason for it. It must be that someone has hypnotized you or duped you or pulled the wool over your eyes or something like that. Why would you ever do something so idiotic? 
And I think Paul's rendition of this equation would essentially be the reality is Jesus plus works doesn't make you right with God. In this text today, I think we see that it makes you cursed by God. Paul says in verse 1, you know, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In other words, we had the gospel clear. Uh, It's almost like he says that the gospel has been placarded for you. We pretty much shoved a billboard in your face which said, Jesus Christ crucified. That's it. We resolved to know nothing else among you, he could say, as he said uh, to the Corinthians. And the cross is portrayed before them in this way, showing them the cross of Jesus Christ is the very epicenter of the gospel. It all hinges on him. It's all about him. And we're left in no doubt about this. The reason any man can be made right with God is because Jesus died for sin. It's because of his finished work. You see, the gospel, the good news of how we can be made right with God, is not an invitation for us to do something, but an invitation for us to see that someone has already done something on our behalf, and that simply by believing we can have eternal life and be right with God. You see, the gospel is not a demand. It's an offer of a free gift. And this is no, this Jesus plus works thing is no first century problem. It's a problem for each and every one of us. It's a present problem for us. And it takes various forms. I think one form could be sometimes we think that we're such bad sinners we couldn't possibly accept God's forgiveness as simply a gift. My mother-in-law is wonderful. But at the checkout, or the till at Costa Coffee. She is a nightmare. I'm conscious that she sometimes watches these videos, so hi, nice to see you. Um, whenever we get to pay for something, I, I just delight in giving a gift at times. We all do, don't we? Um, and I like to, at times, uh, I'm Scottish, I like to at times pay for my mother-in-law for uh, a coffee or for something that she likes. But... I don't know if it's because she's Northern Irish or I don't know what it is, but sometimes when it gets to the point of, let me pay for this for you, it's like, no, 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 I must pay for this. No, no. And she, she just continually presses on the refusal of the gift, basically. And I think that we can do that sometimes in a spiritual sense. We can so refuse the, the generosity of the gift or the, uh, the generosity of the giver or the joy of receiving a gift because it seems a little bit out of touch for us. We sometimes have this mentality where we think, I'm going to have to pay you. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back, won't I? I'll get it the next time. I'm not asking you to get it the next time. For others, I think this works thing is not just a, a failure to accept this free gift of grace. It's more of a prideful thing. We push a self-righteousness, don't we? We like to do certain things in order to present ourselves before God with some kind of credentials. Hey, I did this for you, and I'm way better than that person that's three seats along from me. We do that sometimes. And it's a bad thing to do. Ed Welsh from CCEF says, what we do is we bring something to the gospel We make it a partnership between God and ourselves rather than seeing it as a gift that is all of grace. 
So you see how we, it's not just a first century problem, we can add works to the gospel thinking that it's a good thing to do, thinking that it's almost a noble thing to do, but in fact we can nullify the gospel. You can make Christ's crucified as nothing. Nothing. To snap them out of their spell and give them something of a reality check, and I hope for us tonight as well, Paul points uh, to two things in particular, which I think if these Galatians had taken note of, would have prevented them from falling into error. Uh, and the two things are, first of all, consider how you received the Holy Spirit, verses 1, and f- 1 to 5. And secondly, consider the plain teaching of the Bible, verses 6 and 9. And then we'll finish it off with a third point later. First of all, consider how you received the Holy Spirit. Paul tries to snap them out of their confusion by offering four rhetorical questions for them. See if you can pick up on the common theme. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, calling them back to their experience of being born again as Christians. Are you so foolish, verse 3, after beginning with the Spirit that you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Trying to show them that that adding to or supplementing grace is just illogical. In other words, you're in. There's nothing you can do. You're saved. You're forgiven. There's nothing to add. Verse 4, have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? I think in here Paul's appealing to the cost of following Jesus that they would have experienced. To follow Jesus is the only way to be saved. And how odd it would be now if religious works could actually do it or verse 5 does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard the last question really is a nail on the head isn't it the four the four questions are really pointing to the common theme of how you received the Holy Spirit it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that confirms the conversion of a person because the Holy Spirit is poured out into the heart of a believer at the point of conversion. It's not something that you receive later. And the Spirit dwells, lives in every true believer, authenticating their salvation by, by sanctifying them, making them more like Jesus, producing Christ-like fruit and giving gifts for the, the building up of the church. Uh, he helps us to pray, and it's only by His help and by his leading, that we can ever call God Father and pray to him in faith. It's the Spirit's work. It's what the Holy Spirit does. And it was a promise that was foretold through the Old Testament scriptures that there was a day coming that would be marked by, by the coming of the Messiah, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would not be on a select few that God chose as those who would proclaim his message boldly, but it would come on all people, all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's asking then, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? People in the churches in Galatia. Well, he makes it quite clear here. He, it, the, the account is quite simply, Paul preached the gospel, they believed what they heard, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's it. Paul preached the gospel, they believed what they heard, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there was no need for any other works, no need for circumcision, no need for any kind of religious observance of the law as a means of trying to win favor with God. So for them to be duped and bewitched, as it were, by 
these false teachers to suggest that they needed something else to add to the good news of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone is error. And for Paul, I'm sure he saw them as just going backwards. You're just jumping back into that burning building. And I wonder if you've ever thought about your conversion experience. I wonder if you've ever looked carefully for the marks of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Thought through how you came to believe. Surely through the preaching of the word, through people sharing this word with you. And by you believing, accepting that what was being shared was true and so you put your faith and trust in Jesus you laid hold of these promises of forgiveness for sin and eternal life by believing what you heard well I can tell you even if you do not know the exact moment when that happened God knows and if you have truly believed then the Holy Spirit lives in you the question I think is begged of all of us is just what do you think is the basis for God's acceptance of us that Galatians throws this question up repeatedly. It's not your good life and living a good life. It really is just still the same as the day you first believed. It's trusting in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The only righteous one who died in our place on our behalf. That's a daily, it's a gospel for daily remembering. We must remind ourselves of that every single day. We receive the Holy Spirit and Paul when we first believe. And Paul says to the Galatians, if you had only considered at first your experience of receiving the Holy Spirit and, and recognizing his powerful work among you, even for them at that time, seeing the Spirit work miracles among them. You would not have been deceived. That's the first thing Paul says. Then the second thing, if you just considered the plain teaching of the Bible, you would not have been deceived. We see this in verses 6 to 9. And this is super clever by Paul. Because without a doubt, it ha I mean, it has to be said, these false teachers with their background in Judaism would have been appealing, of course, to the law of Moses. Okay? Uh, the law of Moses that we should observe, which tells us about all the kind of things that we must do as the people of God but I'm sure as well as that that they appealed to Abraham to justify their arguments for becoming really Jewish kinds of Christians and for observing the law they might have even appealed to the fact that Abraham was circumcised and it's as if Paul says in this section okay you want to talk about Abraham let's talk about Abraham consider Abraham well we, we, we heard of uh, a little snippet of uh, the beginning of his uh, entrance into the Bible. Uh, in Genesis 12, Abram was a man who was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldeans with his wife, Sarai. God led him to this land of Canaan, and there was a promise that, uh, that the nations would be blessed through him, that he was going to be given even this land. And what happened? Well, essentially, God made Abraham a promise. He was going to give him descendants. We saw that in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, he took, God took him, Abraham, outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can. I love that bit. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. In other words, the, descent, the, the promise of descendants was placarded, billboarded before Abraham's eyes, just as I believe the gospel was billboarded, placarded before the Galatians' eyes. So the promise was held out. What was Abraham's response? Verse 6 of Genesis 15 says, Abram believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord, despite the fact that everything, age, barrenness, no fixed abode, all seemed to suggest that this would, that this having descendants would never ever happen. He believed God, that he would, that God would do as he had said. So God gives the promise. That's the first thing. Abraham believed God. That's the second thing. What's the third thing that we see in there? Well, verse 6 tells us, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram's righteousness was therefore not on the basis of acts of moral obedience. It wasn't because he did anything in particular, like being circumcised or anything like that, but it was simply a credit from God to him. God made a promise. Abram believed God. And Abram was considered a friend of God, not an enemy. And that's why Paul then, in verse 7, says, Understand then that those who... What's the word of Galatians 3, 7? Understand then that those who believe... Did that say do? It said believe. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. So people are not made right by doing good works. People are not made right with God because they are, either because they belong to a particular nation. So for Paul here, he could quite easily say, even despite coming from a background of Judaism himself, people are not made right with God because they are Jews or because they convert to Judaism. You even see this in John chapter 8 really plainly. In John 8, G Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, a group of religious leaders who were so steeped in their religion and so stringent in their law-keeping. They were truly observers of the law. They simply believed that by being born even into the Jewish race was enough for them to be considered right with God, enough for them to have been considered as Abraham's children. What does Jesus call them in John 8? Children of Abraham? No, children of the devil. Children of the devil. They claim to be children of Abraham, but they're not. Why does Jesus say that is? Because they do not believe in the one that God has sent. That's him, Jesus Christ. Paul's point in all of this is if you want to consider Abraham, that's fine. Abraham wasn't circumcised, if you want to talk about that, until 14 years after Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul's point is, Abraham is the father of God's people not because he is the biological ancestor of the Jews who can trace some kind of physical DNA all the way back, but because he has a family of spiritual children who follow in his footsteps by believing through faith 
as he did. By faith alone are we justified with God. By faith alone. And the false teachers that were coming and spreading this, these, these terrible teachings that nullified the gospel and made Christ out to be worth nothing forgot that. And they forgot as well as what Paul highlights that this gospel that Abraham received, this blessing that was promised was for the nations. Even then, for the Gentiles. Verse 8 tells us, the scripture foresaw that God would justify not the Jews, the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. So the good news is this, all nations, Israel and every other nation will be blessed through you, Abraham. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, Paul says in verse 9, the man of faith. You get his point? Abraham believed. It's all about faith. It's faith alone that a person is justified. So Paul is saying again to the Galatians, you've been conned into thinking that Jesus plus works equals right with God. And then Paul really hits them hard with this third point. Because it's actually Jesus plus works that equals curse with God. Not blessed. If you rely on observance of the law for a right standing with God, then it's not blessing, you know, it's curse. All who rely, verse 10, on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's Deuteronomy 27. Under a curse. Under a curse, that must have been a shock. Now, some respond to this by saying, but wait a minute, this is God's law. Now, now, you have to understand, okay, that this isn't a denigration at all of God's law. God's law is not bad. The law is a reflection of God's character. We'll learn a bit more about the law uh, next week uh, from Andy. But this, and suffice to say just now, this, this law is holy and right and good. And God offers many, many commands in Scripture that we must obey. Even Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. We ought to pursue holiness and obedience is good. Okay, don't misunderstand me on that. But the problem here is not with the law or with a desire to obey the law. The problem is in verse 10, with those who rely on the law. Those who rely on the law as a means of presenting themselves before God as worthy of his love and worthy of his salvation. And here is exactly why Paul can say we are cursed if we in, indeed rely on the law. First of all, the law requires perfection. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You become a transgressor when you break just one law. You are a transgressor. So first of all, the law requires perfection. Second of, all, second of all, no one can actually keep the whole law. We might keep some laws. We may keep some better than other people. We may improve on some areas through time. But you and I cannot keep the whole law of God and do it all the time. I mean, do we really love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves? Do we do that every day without fail? 
I don't. Can we really say that there is nothing that we ever want more, want or love more than God? I can't, sadly. That we always treat people the way we would want to be treated. That we're always fair and honest and never judgmental, never selfish. Can we say that? We can't. Many of us think that we do quite well, but only by virtue of the fact that we measure ourselves up against other people and we tend to prefer to measure ourselves up against those who we think are a little bit worse than us, don't we? It's just another form of self-righteousness, just another reason for God to condemn us, really. Because the problem is we're worse than we think we are. And because of that, we're in trouble. Verse 10 says, all who rely on the law rely on observing the law, are under a curse for it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So you see, this law only serves to show us our sin and pronounce death upon us. That's what the law does for us. And again, we'll get to this next week, but this law is intended to draw us and, and pull us towards Christ which is exactly what Paul gets to in verse 13, because here's the good news of the gospel, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ rescues us from the curse of the law, frees us from its shackles, enables us to live not in the weight of of guilt and shame because of our transgression or because of our lawlessness, And he enables us to live in freedom and in right relationship with God. And he redeemed us, of course, by dying on the cross for our sin. That's what Paul placarded, billboarded for everyone to see. Openly and unashamedly. And so should we. Is that what we're about as a church? I mean, we, our, our vision is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. How do we think we're going to do that? Unless we placard Jesus Christ crucified for this city to see. How are we going to do that? Well, we can buy a building with a frontage, certainly, but it will not happen unless we open our mouths and share it. Because people are out there in our city who think they are good because they're better than other people. They think that they have some kind of relationship with God and because they're not as bad as other people, in the end, well, if God's fair, he's going to accept me, isn't he? They are under a curse. And my friend, that might be you here tonight if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus. And my encouragement would be for you to see the way this speaks of Jesus Christ and see what he did for you so that you might be free of of that condemnation and that curse being heaped upon you and realize that the reason that can be is because he took it on himself. Paul makes no apology. Did you notice what Paul doesn't say? Paul does not say Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking our curse upon himself. That would have been quite easy to say, I think. But it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for himself. In other words, he so associated himself with our sin and so personally absolved, uh, uh, absorbed this 
judgment that was ours, this wrath from the Father that should have been poured out on us, onto himself that he is the curse. Will you believe in him? Will you by faith, like Abraham, like Paul, like the many who are sitting here tonight, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, take hold of those promises of eternal life for those who believe in Jesus Christ and trust in his death upon the cross as paying the price for our sin. Maybe you've been born into a Christian family. Maybe you're making the same kind of mistake as as the Jews were making, assuming that just because they've been born into some kind of physical, they think some physical DNA, oh, my parents are Christians, therefore I must be. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. Believe in him for yourself. This is one of the most central truths of Christianity, you understand. Justification by faith alone. People have died for this and spilled their blood for this in order to ensure that we might even be here today appreciating this, loving this truth. No less than Jesus Christ himself, but many have been martyred. Patrick Hamilton was one of the first martyrs of the Scottish Reformation. And he was subjected to a gruesome six-hour burning in front of St. Salvator's College in St. Andrews. Why? Because he believed and preached justification by faith alone. He was burned because he refuted the teachings of the Catholic Church that you needed to perform various works, including confession before priests and paying indulgences to shorten your period in purgatory, which, by the way, does not exist. And Hamilton died for believing this and preaching this. I was a pastor in that city and had great joy preaching justification by faith alone in that very chapel where outside his initials are on the ground. I've always been impacted by what he wrote before he died. Some of the material that was circulated that led to his death because it was in the hands of Beaton. And he writes this, as a discourse between the law and the gospel. The law says, pay your debt. Christ, uh, the gospel says, Christ has paid it. The law says, you're a sinner, despair, and you shall be damned. The gospel says, you're forgiven. Be of good comfort. You shall be saved. The law says, Make amends for your sin. The gospel says Christ has made it for you. The law says the Father of heaven is wrathful towards you. The gospel says Christ has pacified him with his blood. The law asks, where is your righteousness, goodness, and satisfaction? The gospel says Christ is your righteousness your goodness, your satisfaction. All because Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we might freely believe. Not do anything. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Not do anything, but receive the gift. And you do that by repenting of your sinful ways, confessing the sin that nailed him to that tree, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. If you have not done that, can I plead with you tonight to see that you can have that curse removed right now and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself, to live in you and secure you for that day that is to come when we will be with him in glory and where faith will be made sight. And you, brothers and sisters of Charlotte Chapel, again, how can we keep our mouths shut? with such a great salvation and such great grace for the sin that we see in this city. You would think at times we didn't have a message to preach, wouldn't you? The way we keep our mouths closed. Wow, we have a message to proclaim and a spirit of God in us to help us proclaim it. So let's preach Christ crucified and placard him before this city. Let's pray together.